Good morning. There's two Bible readings today. Uh, the first one is found on page four, which is of the Church Bibles, which is Genesis chapter two, verses 15 to 25. Just repeating Genesis chapter two, verse 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed it up, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his mother and, father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The next reading can be found on page 1152. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. That's page 1152 of the Church Bibles, starting at verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of, it, of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But if but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off on her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. 
For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Um, I messaged some vicar friends of mine as soon as I started to read this passage this week. If anyone's got a, a sermon on 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, I'd love to hear from you. Here are some of their replies. I once spent an hour talking to a Christian friend about that passage. He had lots of ideas about what it didn't mean and no idea what it did. Uh, Another, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And then this one, here's a recording. I was happy with it at the time. No one threw anything at me or removed their hats. Uh, It reminds me, um, do we have the sermon slides, Paul? No. Okay. Okay. Um, It reminds me of that classic uh, children's book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. You know that one? The family come across rivers and streams and forests and mud and snowstorms, and they realize they can't go round it, under it, or over it. They've just got to go through it. And uh, that is what we try to do here at this church. We, we read through books of the Bible from beginning to end, usually. And we started this letter to the Corinthians two years ago. We, we revisited it last spring, and, and God willing, we'll go through it. We'll finish it um, before Easter. So we're going on a bear hunt. We're not scared. Let's start to go through it. Uh, 20 years ago, in the run-up to the Queen Mother's funeral... Buckingham Palace issued an announcement. Although women had always worn hats to royal church services before, this time they didn't have to. They were free to choose to hat or not to hat. And perhaps that highlights one of the major issues with our text. It feels just so far removed from our normal experience of life. It's as alien to us as attending a royal funeral. But it's not just culturally alien, it's culturally awkward. Perhaps even more so in 2022 than it would have been in 2002. But we're going to trust, as I've already said, that God's word is always worth listening to. It's always good for us, whatever culture we're in, whoever we are. And this portion of God's word obviously is addressed to Christians first and foremost. It has a lot to say about how we do church together. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, still thinking through the Christian faith, there are good things here for you too. So can I encourage you, if that red red mist descended a little bit, to to look through the red mist? Because there are wonderful things here for us about who we are as human beings, who Christ is and what it means to live for him. Let's just begin by remembering where we are in the letter. Verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything, and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So Paul begins with a word of encouragement. Here is a church that remembers the gospel tradition. 
That's what he talks about when he, he says the word traditions. He's not talking about kind of quirky, morally neutral Christmas traditions like we have. He's talking about the totally true gospel tradition about Jesus Christ. Crucified, died, risen, saviour. But this church, they're still not yet looking for every part of life with gospel spectacles. There's far too much Corinth in the church. And so Paul is writing this letter to reshape them into the the church that he wants them to be, that God wants them to be a gospel-shaped church. And that is going to impact their life outside, but also their life inside. And that is especially the theme of chapters 11 to 14, the church inside, how they practice the Lord's Supper, that's next week, how they exercise spiritual gifts, how they love each other, chapter 13, how they speak in public meetings, chapter 14. But this section begins with something very fundamental about who they are, about how they relate to one another as men and women. Should they live like the world, be deliberately different to the world, or something in between? Well, we'll discover more of the cultural background of Corinth as we go along, uh, but let's go through it. Let's not delay any longer. Let's start with the first of three lessons, and um, you might want to just jot these down. There should be some pens around you on the service sheet. Men and women should honor their gender difference in public worship. Verses three to six. Men and women should honor their gender difference in public worship. Verse three. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, understanding this verse is like finding the key that unlocks a padlocked door. If we can't unlock this verse, we're going to struggle to understand the rest of the passage. But there are two questions within it that make it really quite hard to unlock. The first is the word of that meaning, head, the, the meaning of that word, head. It's clearly a picture, a metaphor. But what is it a picture of? Well, first of all, it clearly can't be about who is more important. Because we know that the Father isn't more important, more superior to the Son. Each member of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equally, fully, perfectly divines. It's not about superiority or importance. But it could be about priority, who comes first, and, and uh, authority, who leads in a relationship. Jesus often said, didn't he, that he, he came under the authority of his Father. He was sent on a mission. And what is more, if, if Paul really was a closet sexist and he just wanted to put women down, this would be an odd way of, of writing it. Because he doesn't put women at the bottom and then men and then Christ and then God as if it was some sort of outdated, oppressive patriarchy. But women are in the middle and Christ is at the top and the bottom. So the word head isn't a word that signifies greater importance. Christians back then and today are not to believe that men are somehow superior to women. But we are to remember in some way that each member of each of these two pairs has a symbolic, a spiritual head. There is a God-given order, a priority involving priority and authority to relationships. That is true between the Father and the Son. So it's not demeaning to say that in some way it is true between men and women. But what does that mean for us in church life? That we need to grapple with the second question of this verse. Is Paul speaking about men and women in general, or husbands and wives specifically? Because the Greek word is the same. We could translate it either way. 
Well, it does seem that as if, as if there was a presenting issue in Corinth between husbands and wives. By the time we get to chapter 14, we'll see that. And the Bible does speak elsewhere. Think, for example, Ephesians 5 about God's God-given order for marriages. And that if we're sitting here this morning and we're married, there will be specific questions that this text prompts us to think about ourselves or together. But I think it's, it's actually quite helpful to read this in general terms, men and women in general. Not least because in the middle of the passage, Paul uses the creation story about Adam and Eve, who were also the first married couple, to back up his case. Uh, hence our lesson, men and women in general should honor their gender difference in public worship. So what did that mean in Corinth? Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So just as it is for us, public speaking is part of public worship. People speak to God in prayer. People speak to one another in prophecy. We'll think more about prophecy over the coming weeks. But men and women in Corinth, and presumably also today, are to do that in ways that do not dishonor their symbolic, their spiritual head. So Paul says to the Corinthians, just imagine a situation in which a man comes into your church gathering and he prays with his head covered. What does that communicate to you in your culture at that time? Well, the only people who wore, the only men who wore head coverings in those days were pagan priests. There's a statue of the Emperor Augustus with his head covered as he offers a sacrifice to Roman gods. What is that going to communicate in the church if the Christian men start to do that? Surely it's dishonoring their spiritual head, Christ, because they're not exclusively worshipping Christ in the way that they worship. Now Paul says, imagine a Corinthian woman, especially a wife perhaps, coming into church and praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. What is that communicating in your culture? Well, probably that in some way she is kind of distancing herself from her husband or maybe kind of saying, I'm just as equal with him. I've got my newfound spiritual equality and I'm, I'm absolutely equal with him and so I can just throw off the symbol of, of culture. Because that is what a, a woman's uncovered head symbolized in that culture back then. It was how the loose women of the day dressed or liked to carry themselves. It's as if they said, you can see my hair, you can see the rest of me too if you like. It was as disgraceful as a woman in that culture at that time having her head shaved, which incidentally was the brutal punishment for an adulteress in Corinth at that time or in the culture. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians when they gather together, he says, your church services are public meetings. And so the way you conduct yourself within those public meetings matters. For the wives in particular, that is it's not the place to kind of assert their newfound spiritual equality with their husband by just throwing off their the cultural expectations. And perhaps for men and women in general, church wasn't the place to push the acceptable boundaries of fashion. Church is a place where they honor one another as men and women in their public worship. But what does that mean? 
What does that mean for us today? Does that mean that hats are back? Well, we're going to get more practical a bit later on, but for now, let's keep going through the text because we probably still need convincing that it really is good for us. So second, our gender difference is given to us for God's glory's sake. Our gender difference is given to us for God's glory's sake, verses 7 to 12. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Well, once again, our political correctness alarm bells are probably ringing at full volume. Is, is Paul really saying that, that women are nothing more than a man's plus one? Of course he's not saying that. And that is why I, w- I wanted that other reading from Genesis read. Now, the Bible is clear, Genesis 1.27, God creates men and women together in the image of God. But Paul's main theme here is an image, but glory. And the first half of the passage is all about behaviors that dishonor, de-glorify others. And now he moves to the positive side of the equation, how gender difference is glorious gift given to us in creation. You notice when that passage was read, the Genesis passage, how the creation of men and women ends on a note of glory. Adam sings that wonderful song, doesn't he? That love song about how Eve completes him as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and and how they're going to serve God together as God's co-equal image bearers. See, Adam reflects God's glory, but Eve reflects Adam's glory. It's not about whether men and women are more important, but about how God creates men and women so that glory can overflow from one to another. Glory overflows from God to man, from man to, to woman, and then back up again. It's this kind of beautiful cascade of glory. God created men and women to be glory reflectors in their own unique ways. And as created men and women, the Corinthians were there to reflect God's glory in in their own unique ways in their own culture at that time. So they had to dress appropriately. If if a man covers his head, he's he's dishonoring the one whose glory he was created to reflect. Because God created the man, Adam, Adam, to, to have that particular role of leading others, especially his, his wife. And if he covers up his head, he's effectively saying, no, I will define myself for who I want to be, thank you very much. I will keep glory for myself and I won't reflect it back to you. And it's similar, but the other way around, for the woman, especially if she's married. When she covers her head, she says yes to God's good creation order. She honors her husband who is over her in the Lord and she reflects glory back to him all the way back up to God, who made that beautiful cascade of male and female glory in the first place. You see that in verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. What? What have the angels got to do with it? Well, I think the sense here is that angels are just watching. Angels are interested in what is going on when God's people gather. And it's as if Paul is saying, you know, if even the angels are watching you worship God, then surely you ought to take these things seriously. Surely you should honor your God-given gender difference when you gather together because God has got that good order and purpose in mind when he made us as men and women. What better place to honor our gender differences than in public worship? 
Not kind of fighting against the way God has made us, but rejoicing in our differences for his glory's sake. And that theme of glory actually is is so important to this passage. Just look back to the end of the previous section, chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's a a summary in many ways of of what's just gone on before in that long conversation about food sacrificed to idols, how they interact with the world around them. But that theme of for the glory of God spills over into this section too. As they gather together as God's people, they are to be doing it for the glory of God. And they are to follow verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul's example as he follows the example of Christ. If, if even Christ willingly followed God's good order and submitted to God's authority, then surely we should do the same. We should imitate Christ in our interactions with our neighbours, chapters 8 to 10, and also our interactions in our life together, chapters 11 to 14. Christ never kept glory for himself. He always pointed it back to his Father. And there are many ways we can do that. But that includes the unique responsibilities and opportunities God has given to us as men and women in general. Gender is perhaps the hot topic of our day, isn't it? Of our culture. There is so much confusion about it. The last 10 years or so, there's been a 1,500% increase in the number of boys and a whopping 5,000% increase in the number of girls being referred to a large NHS gender identity clinic. Our culture says that gender is at best something we define for ourselves and at worst something that is just a shackle to escape from. But our passage says to us, no, it's not. It is a good gift given to you from God for his glory's sake to reflect him in your own unique way. And we need to hold on to that as we listen to the news, as we watch TV, especially as we talk to our kids. God made us male and female for our good, not to oppress us. It is a gift to enable us to flourish, not a shackle to escape from. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So just in case any of the Corinthians, just in case any of us men are sitting here today thinking, ah, it's a license for misogyny. Paul says, don't be so stupid. We are made different to each other, but we still depend on each other. Mutual interdependence between men and women is is just as much a part of God's good plan for our gender difference as, as the difference is part of his plan. And it's all for his glory, verse 12. Everything comes from God. All glory comes from God. All glory is ultimately on the way back to him. That is how Jesus lived his life, isn't it? He was a male human being. He received glory from God and he, he gladly gave it back to his father. And it is how we should live our lives too. Our gender difference is given to us for God's glory's sake. And that is true especially, I take it, from this passage when we meet together as church. But how? That's the million-dollar question. Are we going to issue with hats, ladies, when you leave the building? 
thirdly and finally, demonstrating our gender difference requires wisdom and humility. Demonstrating our gender difference requires wisdom and humility, verses 13 to 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? I was talking about this passage at the end of our home group on Tuesday. I said, oh, I'd love you to pray for this passage. It's really difficult. And they're, what is it? I said, oh, it's that. Now, oh, right. And um, someone said, yeah, my mother, like the church she grew up in, she, she, all the women in her church would have worn hats. Someone else said that uh, jeans were off limits in the church where she grew up. I'm going to a, a birthday dinner with a friend on Friday night, and if I don't wear a jacket and tie, I won't be allowed in to the venue. Different cultures have different ideas about what is proper. Decorum varies from place to place. And that is what Paul is appealing to here. He began with kind of cultural stuff. He went to sort of theology from creation, and he's going back to culture and decorum. Verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. It's as if Paul is saying, look at the culture around you. What do people think in your culture in first century Corinth when a man walks around with long hair? What do people think about a woman whose head is shaven? Or a woman who has long hair? And he fills in the blanks. For whatever reason, at that time, we thought about some of these earlier, long hair dishonors a man. Long hair is the glory of a woman. He is not issuing moral commands about hairstyles. He is appealing to what is proper in the culture at the time. I wonder if you remember, just about a year or so ago, the Shadow Culture Secretary, Tracy Brabin, appeared in the House of Parliament with a, a kind of a party dress that showed off her shoulder. There was a big fuss. It was just not proper. And around the same time, Jacob Rees-Mogg on the other side of the house was pictured lying down on one of the front benches. It's just not proper. There's nothing wrong, is there, with turning up to the House of Commons with that dress on? Or nothing wrong with lying down on the bench. It's just not proper. It's just not wise, necessarily. And that is the kind of wisdom Paul is appealing to here, to the Corinthians. What is proper? And what is proper in the world around us may be a guide, not a perfect guide, but may be a guide to what is right for male and female relationships in church life. So are hats a sign, or veils, a sign of honour or dishonour in our culture between men and women? Of course they're not. No one cares if you wear a hat or if you cover your head if you're a woman. And so we're not going to issue you, it's good for the church budget, isn't it? We don't have to pay for lots of hats. You're free to wear a hat if you like, but it's not morally right or wrong. So if it's not hats, how can we demonstrate our God-given gender difference in a way that honours God amongst ourselves and, and in the watching world? I don't think that's easy to answer. Some would say that in the same way that married women wore a veil in those days, married women today wear a wedding ring and tend to take their husband's name. And, and imagine that a woman stood up the front and kind of took off her wedding ring and threw it on the floor and said, I'm going to go back to my maiden name and made a big fuss about that. Or maybe this passage would say something to a woman like that. At best, I think that is a bit silly, uh, weak and unhelpful application. Surely it means more than that. Surely it has something to say to us if we're a woman but we're not married. Surely it has something to say to us 
as men. Well, how about we go back to what we touched upon earlier, that the way we dress in church communicates something significant. That is not to say that we can't have an eclectic dress sense or a glamorous fashion sense. It's not to say that we all need to dress as boringly and plainly as possible, even though some of us like me would quite like to be able to do that. But maybe it does mean that we should just check ourselves when we get dressed in the morning, before church, or whether we're male or female. Is this outfit going to draw unhelpful attention to me? Is it in some ways there to please me rather than help others? Might it just trip up people in their faith or make others kind of like, what are they doing? One of my friends who preached this passage told me how he began his sermon by saying to them, imagine that I turn up to a church wearing this symbol. And he shows a picture of a yin-yang. What would you think on my T-shirt? If I had a a yin-yang on my T-shirt, well, maybe that he was just a bit odd. Maybe that he kind of hadn't left his 1990s teenage fashion sense behind. They just kind of shrugged their shoulders, whatever. Imagine he turns up to church with a T-shirt with a picture of a swastika on. That's just never appropriate, is it? And in a less black and white way, there may be some things that we could wear that are just not right. Maybe sexually suggestive for men or women. Maybe overtly political. And so they're going to stir up division that's just unnecessary. Maybe just covered in designer labels designed to flaunt our wealth. We just need to think, perhaps. There are no hard and fast answers, and applying this lesson does require that we think carefully about our culture. And it's very easy, and I think I'm doing this even now as I speak, to drift from the main point of the lesson, that demonstrating gender differences, gender, sorry, demonstrating gender differences especially requires wisdom and humility. And in our culture, in our day, what we wear doesn't really communicate much about honor or dishonor between men and women. So maybe a better line to go down in terms of thinking how we apply this passage is not what we wear or don't wear, but what we do. And we're going to think a bit more about that in a week's time at this online evening about men and women in leadership. I'd encourage you to come to that. But for now, perhaps that we could just say that whatever roles we have in church, God's Word says to us we can do those in ways that are true to us as men or as women. We don't need to try to do that role in a more... We don't need to kind of pretend that we're more male if we're not or more female if we're not, whether that's leading kids' work or serving refreshments or welcoming others or participating in front. God has given us our different characters and we can serve according to our different characters. But God has also given us our different genders. And we don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed about that. We can be proud that God has made us as a man or as a woman and we can use our gender in a way that glorifies him. As I mentioned a little earlier, this this cultural gender revolution that is going on around us is going on so quickly, so disorienting. seemingly even erasing the differences between men and women and boys and girls. And how does God want us to respond to that? Well, we might feel like we just want to kind of stand up and shout and speak God's truth publicly into this confusion. And and there may be times when we do need to speak up and say, no, God's word says this. 
But I wonder actually if this passage just helps us say, just in a quiet, gentle, positive way, we can model what it means to be men and women created in the image of God. God's good pattern for gender in positive ways, in our church, in our marriages, in our friendships, and especially, and even more so, I think, as we raise our children in a very confused world. And the exact way we do that might not be clear. And so you might be sitting there being quite frustrated. I think I've been a bit frustrated as I've prepared this this week. God, why don't you just tell us what this actually means for us today? And that is why I take it we need to pray for wisdom. As Paul says, judge for yourselves. Think about it. And maybe that is something that we could do together. We could think just over coffee afterwards. Or if you've got an idea, and text me or message your home group. What does that mean? I was thinking this. Is that right or is it something totally different? So we need wisdom, but also we need humility. Verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is actually the third time out of four when Paul will say to the Corinthians, everyone else is doing it like this. Don't think you're above them. And so we need to similarly not respond to passages like this with contention, but with humility. So, okay, I'm just going to think, I'm going to listen, I'm going to learn from others. Well done. We've made it. We didn't go round it, over it, or under it, went through it, and no one has thrown anything at me yet. I've actually found this text really exciting to grapple with this week. Sometimes it's just good to be made to feel pretty uncomfortable by God's word and think, God, what are you saying? And I hope it's been good for you too as well. Because our, our world would argue that our gender differences are irrelevant or even just something to be fought against and liberated from. And God's words reminds us that even if it is hard, even as culture changes, oftentimes very quickly, we need to be shaped by his word, not the world. True in our marriages, our lives, our families, but also in our life together as a church. Let me rehearse those three lessons. Men and women should honor their gender differences in public worship. Why do we do that? Because our gender difference is given to us for God's glory's sake. How do we do that? We ask for God's help because demonstrating our gender differences requires wisdom and humility. Should we bow our heads and pray? Our Father, we thank you that you made us to be in your image, reflecting your glory. And we pray, Father, so much for wisdom, humility, and unity as we think about this passage, as we maybe just meditate upon it, talk about it with others over the course of this next week or so. And we pray that as we live in a world that is so confused about these things, you'd, you'd keep us from just standing up and shouting and getting angry. You'd help us to, to model in positive, good ways what it means to be men and women created by you. Lord, I pray if there's 
things that I've said this morning that are unhelpful, Lord, that you would take those away from our hearts. And if there are things that have been helpful, you would grow those things for your name's sake. Amen. Um, I'm going to invite Nush to come and lead us in our prayers. Thanks, Nush.